Welcome to another episode of the Amford Church Sermon Podcast. We're thrilled that you're taking the time to listen to what we have to say about God, the world, and you. These sermons are recorded live during our weekly Sunday morning services. To find out more about us or to plan a visit to join us, check out our website, amfordchurch.com. Again, thanks for listening and enjoy. I wonder how many of you know your athletic history. Anybody know what important event happened in 1952? What record was broken? The four-minute, good knowledge, wow. The four-minute mile was broken in 1952. Roger Bannister, a man who will live in infamy. We even have 50p coins with a picture of his foot on, I think, and the time. And three minutes, 59.4 seconds, something like that. Apparently, when he broke the the four-minute mile, when he ran one mile under four minutes... Um, people were waiting, I think it was in Oxford somewhere, around a track, waiting, sorry? It was in Oxford, yeah. Um, he, uh, there was a big crowd watching, and the timekeeper had a, a megaphone, and had stopped the, stopped the watch, and as he read out the time and said, three, everybody erupted, and nobody heard the actual time that he'd run. Um, people were so excited and so happy. But do you know how long his record lasted? Anybody know? That's a really, really niche fact. Broke the, the four-minute mile. The first person in recorded history to do that. A lot of people had tried before and failed. Roger Bannister made it. Do you know how long it took for somebody else to do it slightly quicker? No, not no, three months, six months. 46 days. 46 days. So who knows how many years. Somebody, well, since the last time somebody did it. Well, he was the first recorded one. But it didn't take long for, for what he did to inspire other people. Maybe, it, maybe that was what it was. It was the inspiration for others to go, yeah, I could do that as, as well. Maybe it was confidence that they needed. Maybe he was, I don't know, like a, a good leader, going, forging the way, cutting the path through. And now, decent athletes run under four minutes well, pretty much all the time. I imagine Mo Farah could do it in his sleep or you know, in a training run. He, his best time is 3.58 or something like that, over a mile. People do it fairly regularly after Roger Bannister broke the barrier that seemed to be completely impossible. Well, we're going to talk about something a little bit like that today, about somebody who's forged ahead, who's gone forward, who then inspires and stirs up and makes it possible for the people to follow him and do similar kind of things. I wonder if you saw that in the reading. It wasn't really about athletic achievement this time. It wasn't about an athletic leader, more a political leader. So think about politics for a minute. Maybe we thought a bit too much about it this last week and and you'd rather not. But um, put out of your heads all of the kind of frustrations that we've had watching the news and listening to party political broadcasts and all the kind of stuff that's been going on this week. I want you to try and put that out of your head. Um, All of the disappointment, all of the frustration, all of the, oh, why won't they just answer a question? Forget all of our politics for a moment and just think in your mind, dream with me for a moment about the ideal political leader about the ideal king or ruler or leader or queen, what would they be like? What would that person be like? I've got a few suggestions. Feel free to close your eyes and dream about your own leader if you want to. But I reckon they'd be somebody like this. Somebody who's one of us, right? Somebody who, who's like me, who knows what it's like to go through what I go through, at least to a degree. They don't have to be exactly like me. But, you know, somebody who comes from where I come from. Somebody who understands, who gets what it's like to face what we face. Somebody with authority who could actually do something about it, maybe, and you know, change the situation as it is for us. Somebody who's accessible, 
That's what you want, isn't it? Not somebody far away, high up, not interested in you, but somebody who knows what you're like and who welcomes you to come and talk to them, who welcomes you to come and, and say your piece, somebody who's accessible so you feel listened to. Maybe even more basic than all of that, we just want somebody that's good, don't we? Somebody who looks at the world and, and is right when they say, that is good and that is not good and I'm going to do something about it. Who comes up with ideas for how to improve the world and make it a better place. When we think of our idea leader, when you dream your dreams, really you just want somebody that's good, don't you? If we're going to hand over all of this authority to that person, whether it's in the classroom, whether it's in a hospital, whether it's in our constituency or a town or our country or the world or my own life, when you're going to hand over that much power to somebody else, they'd better be somebody who's good. They'd better be somebody who... Well, how about somebody who's honest too? You know, no spin. When you ask them a question, they give you a proper answer. You don't have to keep on pressing them and, and, and watching them kind of try and wheedle and, and get out of it. No, when they talk, they're not an empty seat in an interview who you know, doesn't want to bother talking to you. They're not somebody who spins away and tries to wriggle away. They're somebody who gives it to you straight. I think that's a pretty good list, isn't it? Maybe you would add other things. You know, somebody who's really good somebody who does what's right, somebody who's one of us, who's accessible, who's powerful, and who's really honest. That's the kind of leader that I want anyway. So dream your dreams. Imagine that kind of person. How does that make you feel? If you were to have a leader like that, if they were to be on the ballot paper, if they were to be up for the head teacher job at, at your children's, grandchildren's school, what would it feel like to have leaders like that? For the new boss to come into your department, and for them to be like that, it would be amazing, wouldn't it? It would give you real peace that when they make decisions, even when they seem like hard decisions that maybe we don't quite understand, you can trust them. It kind of gives you peace. It, it means that you, you're free to try things, you know, try difficult things to fail because good bosses, good leaders let you do that. They trust you and you trust them. It's refreshing, isn't it? it kind of gives you confidence. It even maybe makes you feel a little bit proud, proud to be a part of it, to be a part of their team, of their school, of their department, of their country. It inspires you, doesn't it? Like Roger Bannister. To have a leader like that makes you think, yeah, maybe I could get involved. Maybe I could be a part of that. But think a little bit deeper. What does it make you do? Not just how does it feel to have a leader like that, but what would it make you do? I think it would make you follow that king, follow that leader, follow that teacher, follow that boss. Maybe, maybe we've grown up in a culture and we're a little bit cynical about our leaders, but honestly, if they were really that good, I think we'd follow them and give our lives to them, wouldn't we? We'd give our careers, we'd do whatever we had to, to keep them in power, to keep them leading, to help them do a good job and to serve them. I reckon that's what we would do. We'd give our lives and give our time and all of our extra time as well to serve them and make sure whatever they were after, the project that they had started, because it was something good, because it was something for us, because they actually had the clout to pull it off, that's something I could get involved with. That's a king. I think we all want, isn't it? A king, a leader like that who'd stir our hearts and then be somebody secure that we could bet our lives on. Well, David describes a, king's like that, a king like that. I wonder if you heard it. 2 Samuel chapter 23, if you want to follow along. These are the last words of David. Not literally his kind of deathbed words, but more like his last speech, you know, his last big public words to his people. And what does he say? Well, I reckon you could sum it up in one sentence. He says it a bit more interestingly than this, but he says, it's good to have a good king. 
That's basically it, isn't it? It's really good to have a good king. We could maybe add something, especially if he lives forever. That would be pretty cool, wouldn't it? Let me read to you again what David says. This is the oracle of David, son of Jesse. The oracle of the man exalted by the Most High, the man anointed by the God of Jacob, Israel, singer of songs. The Spirit of the Lord spoke through me. His word was on my tongue. The God of Israel spoke. The rock of Israel said to me, when one, rule, when one rules over men in righteousness, when he rules in the fear of God, he is like the light of morning at sunrise on a cloudless morning, like the brightness after rain that brings the grass from the earth. Is not my house right with God? Has he not made with me an everlasting covenant, arranged and secured in every part? Will he not bring to fruition my salvation and grant my, me my every desire? But evil men are all to be cast aside like thorns, which are not gathered with the hand. Whoever touches thorns uses a tool of iron or the shaft of a spear. They're burned up where they lie. David is saying it's really good to have a good king, isn't he? And then he describes what that king is like. I wonder if you spotted some of the things that were on our list, or my list anyway. The oracle of David, son of Jesse. Well, who on earth is Jesse? Nobody, he's nobody. He doesn't come up earlier in the Old Testament. He's not a particularly famous or important man. So when people heard that that's who David was, they would say, what? Who? Oh, Jesse, you know Jesse. Jesse from Bethlehem. Bethlehem! Are you kidding me? Bethlehem was not a good place to come from back in the day. It's kind of nice now because we've sung lots of cute songs about it at Christmas time. But back in the day, Bethlehem wasn't a good, a cool, uh, an important place to come from. Bethlehem was a, you know, bad stuff had happened there. You don't want to admit to people that you came from Bethlehem. But David says, yeah, David, just little David, the old shepherd boy, son of Jesse. I've come from the streets. I've come from the back alleys. I'm from a low place, but this is the oracle of the man, exalted by the Most High, the man anointed by the God of Jacob, Israel's singer of songs. You see who David's become? He's one of us. He's a person from a random backcountry town that nobody's really heard of, and if they have, they don't like it all that much, but he's been lifted up, raised up to the highest place, anointed, equipped, strengthened, chosen, that's what that word means, chosen by God, the God of Jacob. Now, that's who some, somebody we have heard of, somebody legit, somebody really good. And he's Israel's singer of songs. That kind of, in Hebrew, apparently kind of could go either way. He's either the one who sang and wrote the songs or the one that they're all about. And if you read the Psalms, if you're not familiar with the Bible, maybe just open it halfway through. You'll find a book called the Psalms. It begins with a silent P. I don't know why. But um, all the, mo most of those songs were written by David. And if you read them, most of those songs are about David. So it works either way. He was a musician who gave people, his people, loads of songs to sing in praise to God and in praise to good kings. And then he was the one that they sang about, because he really was, most of the time, a really, really good king. You see, David is somebody who's one of us. He's come from low, and he's been lifted up high. It's a good thing that somebody like that is on the throne. Well, what does David say? Well, he says in verse 3, when one rules over men in righteousness, when he rules in the fear of God, he's like the light of morning at sunrise, on a cloudless morning, like the brightness after rain, that brings the grass from the earth. What is a good king like? He's righteous. He's good. You know, some of the rules, we don't really like to read through or think about some of the laws and rules in the Old Testament. Sometimes we feel a bit suspicious of those. But do you know that God put some really, really good rules in there? Every single one of them plays a purpose. There's a rule, for example, that says don't put rocks in front of blind people. 
It's a pretty good rule, isn't it? For God, for your king to give you a rule and enforce it, that you don't make life worse for the people who have, have it hard. It's a pretty good law, isn't it? You see, David and God's law that David enforced, that he was judging people with, was a righteous law. It was a law that made good flourish and that crushed down and cut down evil. It was really good. And the king is somebody who follows that, who rules in righteousness. And when he does that, what's it like? Well, it's like the light of morning, of sunrise. I wonder if you've seen that at all this week on your way to work. It's like a cloudless morning, you know, when it's been hammering down all night and all day the day before. We know what that's like. But then the sun breaks out and the grass begins to grow. And all the folks at JGM are rejoicing because we're going to come and buy more lawnmowers to get it cut. But the grass is, everything's flourishing and growing, and it was dry and barren or just gray and miserable. But now, because the king is doing what's good, because our leaders are leading in, and doing right, it's amazing. It's like that fresh smell once the rain is gone and the grass is going and it's freshly cut. It's amazing, isn't it? Isn't that a good picture? It's refreshing. It's comforting. It makes you feel at peace when the leaders are doing what's right. It means you don't have to be on edge all the time. It means you don't have to make a call, have to work out, have to go on the BBC. Um, what's that thing called? Um, oh, I've forgotten it's gone out of my mind. But they've been putting up lots of articles recently where they fact-check politicians and what they say. And so whenever you hear a politician speak, everyone, or at least me anyway, you think, oh, it's probably a lie. It's probably not really true. I better go and try and check the facts. Well, if there's a good ruler, you don't need to worry about that. You can just live your life in peace and encourage. You see, it's like new, um, a new morning. David says something else as well as about good rulers, about good leaders. Did you see that? Maybe a bit of a surprising thing. He's afraid. He has fear. But fear of God. And when we usually talk about that, we often go, oh, no, no, that doesn't really mean fear. It means respect and honor. And that's true. But God is just so enormous. If you were in Bible studies over the last week, you'll have read that passage in, in uh, 2 Samuel 22 that talks about God and uses all these terrifying pictures of whirlwinds and hurricanes and volcanoes and earthquakes and all sorts of fiery things. It's a scary picture of what God is like. And if he has the power to make the world with a word, then he really is enormous and powerful, isn't he? He really is scary. He really is somebody that you don't just honor and respect, but maybe should cringe away from, except when you find out what he's like. It's the kind of fear that draws you in, that makes you feel even more safe when you're on his side. See, David says that's the kind of king that you want. That's the kind of leader, somebody who fears God. Somebody who, well, what does it mean to fear God? It means you don't fear anything else, don't you? That God is the biggest thing in your life. That when other people come with their opinions and ideas and criticisms and, and try and tear you down and knock you and, and persuade you and tempt you away, all of those loud voices, even if they're scary voices, even if they're tempting voices, all of them just become little whispers in comparison to his enormous voice. See, that's what it means to fear the Lord. He becomes everything to you. And so when something comes along that tries to tug you away, it's no competition. You fear God. So think about leaders. A leader who fears God, who fears a God who does good, who's right, is always going to be doing what's right. But he won't be tempted by corruption, by somebody tempting him away. He won't be in fear of, it, of his enemies. He'll trust God and trust that whatever God has told him to do is really good. It's a portrait of a brilliant king. 
isn't it? But is it a picture of David? I wonder if you spotted where David says he got these words from. This is in verse 2. We skipped over it. The Spirit of the Lord spoke through me. His word was on my tongue. The God of Israel spoke. The rock of Israel said to me. He says it four times so you don't miss it. When one rules not just over Israel, over men, over all nations, when he rules in the fear of God, it's really good. It's like the morning. Is my, not how, is my house not right with God? Verse 5. Has he not made with me an everlasting covenant? Can you see what David's doing? Can you see that David here is being a prophet again? Can you see that God has spoken these words to him? This isn't just David's musings on how to be a good king. It's not just David saying, oh, you know what, it's quite nice to have a good king, isn't it? There we go. There's some profound words for the end of my life. David's doing a lot more than just stating the obvious. He's pointing us forward to another king, a king who wouldn't just rule over a little bit of land by the Mediterranean, but who would rule over all men and all women and all children, dead and alive, everybody. A king who would rule in righteousness and never slip up, never send people off to war to die in, in his own place. In fact, he'd do it the other way around, who would fear his father so much that he'd never even sinned once, who would love and honor his God, who would be the king, the everlasting king forever. Now, that would be amazing, wouldn't it? To have a king who doesn't just have a bit of good judgment, does a, a bit of right and then gets voted out a few years later, or messes it up when he eventually, you know, too much power becomes corrupting and Absolute power corrupts absolutely and all of that. But if there was a king who never got corrupted, who never had to be voted out, who never even died, but who lived forever, that would be amazing, wouldn't it? Do you see this as a picture of Jesus? That he's somebody who comes from an obscure town. Although really you've heard from the place he originally came from. He's the one who came from heaven to earth to be one of us. Who came to become a, a baby like us. To a, a town like Bethlehem, a place like Nazareth that was really nothing, and people thought he was nothing because of it, but who's been exalted because of his resurrection, because he lives today, has been exalted, and now he's the king over everything. Do you see, it's Jesus, it's David's pointing us forward that makes this relevant for me and you today. It's not just some old words for some, from some king who lived two and a half thousand years ago. This is David pointing us to a king who's alive today, to the king who's one of us, who's lived, who was a man and is a man just like us, a king who's right and good, who was always doing good, lifting up people who were cast aside by society, pressing down people who got too big for the boots and were oppressing others, giving them what they deserved, always fearing God and doing his will, always like a fresh breeze on a, on a hot day, always like, like when the rain stops and the sun comes out and the darkness is over and light begins to dawn. That's what it's like to have Jesus as your king. I wonder if you know him. I wonder if you know a king like that, because he's a king who's one of us. He's a king who's right and good. He's a king who's powerful, who rules forever. He's a king who fears God, and he won't be swayed by anything wrong. But he's also an honest king. See, this is where we get our first application, and, and it's Jesus being honest with us through David. He says, will he not bring my, to fruition my salvation? It's possible to be saved, to be rescued. Won't he grant my every desire as I come on board with him? But, verse 6, evil men are all to be cast aside like thorns, which are not gathered with the hand. Whoever touches thorns uses a tool of iron or the shaft of a spear. They are burned up 
where they lie. Do you see what he's saying? If there's a king, and the king is really good, the king will be angry and hate what is bad. And so if there are people in the world who are looking for a king, when you find a king who is really good, who does what's right, who fears God and calls you to him, who lives forever, who even steps down to become one of us, who knows what it's like, and then calls us to follow him, to say, come on, come and be part of my kingdom. If that's really what reality is like, well, if you say no to that, well, Jesus has a warning for you. If you say no to that, if you say no to being fruitful, to being like grass that grows up, to being at peace, to following a good king and, and trying to, to do good as he gives you the power to do that. If you say no to all that, well, then what are you saying yes to? Do you see why it's so serious? We don't like to talk about judgment, do we? But this is David being really clear to us. And it's not just in the Old Testament. Sometimes we try and write off Old Testament things as a bit harsh, a bit nasty, a bit judgy. You know, God was bad and, and a bit cruel back then, but he's really nice now Jesus has come. Well, no, God is equally, if not more, gracious in the Old Testament as in the New, and is equally serious about wrong, about evil, about injustice in the New as he is in the Old. Let me, listen, let me read to you, listen to some of Jesus' words. He says, The Son of Man, talking about himself, will send out his angels at the end of time, and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and wrong, and all those who do evil. They will throw them into the fiery furnace where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Do you hear? Do you know that, that this world isn't forever? That Jesus, the king forever, is going to come back and put everything right? That the world is full of good and bad? That in our hearts, by ourselves, we're thorns. We're part of that bad. We're people who stand against kings like this. You don't want really anything to do with it, unless it's what's best or what's good, what serves me. We're people who are thorns, naturally. And so we're in great danger when a good king comes along and says, I'm going to get rid of those thorns. There's going to be a day when I pull up all of that evil, all of that darkness, and I throw it into the fire once and for all. And all that's left will be good. Maybe you're thinking, well, good, I'm a Christian, so I'm good. You know, I've done good, I've done right, here I am in church, so surely I'm one of those fruitful things. Well, we need to think about this picture a little for, uh, for a moment. Perhaps you're thinking, without much confidence like that, that maybe the, something the opposite, that, that you're thinking God is not trustworthy, that he's not good, that how could he judge people like this? Well, we need to think about that picture of thorns, just for a second. What's a thorn bush like? Thorn bush is something that bears thorns doesn't it? And, and that can't change, can't help itself bearing thorns. Even if you were to cut the thorns away to kind of strip them off, eventually the thorns would just come up in another place. So you see, Christians aren't people. The way to avoid that judgment is not just to try and cut off those thorns, to try and be a better person. Thorn bushes can't uproot themselves and move themselves to another part of the garden. Thorn, bush, thorn bushes can't get rid of their own DNA, can't change what they are. And if we're all thorn bushes, if we've all turned against God, if we all really in our heart of hearts don't want a king like this, we want to be kings ourselves, well, then we're in great danger. And we can't get out of it ourselves. 
Do you see that? That's why he uses the picture of thorns, that it's something that can't change itself. So what do we need? Well, we need to look at the gardener. We need to go to the gardener with his tools and with his spears, and we need to say, please don't tear me up with those. Please would you cut me out gently. Please would you take me in your hands and cut me out and plant me on your side of the garden. Would you change me somehow, this kind of magician gardener who's going to change my DNA and make me a fruit plant, make me a a beautiful flower bush, whatever. Could you take me and make me not thorns anymore, but make me fruitful so that I can enjoy when you come, not fire, but warmth and light, so that I can enjoy not being destroyed, but being given life, growing like that grass and resting at peace with you. You see, that's the warning for us this morning is that all of us are thorn bushes, naturally. Christians aren't people who just try to be good, who are better than other people. No, I think you know that, and and I know that. We're no different to anybody else, no better. The only difference between us is that we've looked at the gardener. We've said, please, would you come and cut me out of this thorn bush? Rescue me and replant me so that I'd bear fruit for you, so that I would be different. See, we're not people who change ourselves. We're people who look to the gardener. I wonder if you've looked to him today. I wonder if you are somebody who, who recognizes that he's as good as he is, who wants to be like that, but recognizes you can't do that on your own. Are you somebody who's come to the gardener and asked him to rescue you, to save you, to make you fruitful, to set you down on his grass and make you somebody who he picks up with his hands and brings into his barn rather than ripping up with his tools and casting into the fire? It's a scary thing. It's something we'd really rather not hear. To be honest, I'd really rather not have to say. But Jesus is honest with us. That's what good leaders do. And so I have to be honest with you. And we have to be honest with our world. Not to scare people into submission to Jesus. No, that's not the point. You can't scare a thorn bush into being a fruit bush. But no, to invite, to say it's real. But there is a good God who can bring you out of it. Maybe you still don't trust him. Maybe you're still not so sure. Can I give you one last thing? about this king? Do you know how good he is? Do you know that he is the king who didn't just come to earth to be one of us, but who came to earth to die? Who came to earth, we celebrated at Easter, to be nailed to a tree, to have a thorn bush wrapped around to a crown and forced down onto his head, to be hung up for everybody to see naked and bleeding and to die under God's anger. Jesus died under the fire of God's anger. There's lots of pictures of that in the Old Testament, of, um, of, the, of the burned offering that they would make at the temple, where the offering, the animal, whatever you put on, would be burned up completely. They wouldn't cook it like they did with most of the offerings and kind of share it around. They would burn it completely. It would all be gone. And so all of that sin would be gone. That person could go free because that burnt offering had, had gone. God's anger had come down on it, and it was finished. It was over. Well, that, the cross, Jesus, God himself, hung on a tree with thorns in his brow and screamed out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Do you see what's going on? Jesus was being burned up by God's anger. He, God himself, was taking that anger and swallowing it up, taking it on himself, being completely crushed, wiped out into the dust. Why? Why would he do that? So that we could go free so that that anger would be gone forever, so that when you meet God, you can meet him as a king who loves you, who picks you up with his hands and brings you into his barn, not as a warrior 
who scoops you up with his sword and tosses you into the fire. He's inviting you to do that today. He's a king who's to be feared, but also a king who's given everything so that we could draw close and be his. Well, we're running out of time, but I wonder if it might just be useful to skip ahead and look at David's mighty men, give you a few hints and things to think about, and then go home and read these, especially if you've got young boys. These are brilliant stories to read um, to lads at bedtime. What is it like to follow this king? If that's what he's done for us, drawn close, powerful, righteous, stands for good, so much so that he'd even die for us, that he'd swallow up all of that anger in himself so that we could know God's smile. Well, what is it like to follow a king like that? Well, it means like Roger Bannister, like any good leader, like any good boss, you just want to follow them and be like them. I wonder if you spotted how some of these mighty men are just like David. Let me read to you a couple of the stories again. Joshab Bashabeth, a tack Mennonite, was chief of the three. He raised a spear against 800 men whom he killed in one encounter. Unbelievable odds. But there he stands by himself, fighting. Next to him was Eleazar, son of Dodai, the Ahohite. As one of the three mighty men, he was with David when they taunted the Philistines gathered at Pastamim for battle. Then the men of Israel retreated. Everybody ran off, but he stood his ground and struck down the Philistines until his hand grew tired and froze to the sword. The Lord brought about a great victory that day. The troops returned to Eleazar, but only to strip the dead because it was finished. His job was done. Do you see what Eleazar was doing? He'd maybe even been there on that day when David walked out and fought Goliath on his own. He saw God come through and win that battle through weak little David. And so Eleazar is filled with strength. And God does it again, brings power to him. And he fights so hard, his hand is just cramped to his sword. There's plenty of stories of that in history, by the way. I can tell you some later on if you're really interested. But um, he fights so much, kills so many people, that the people of Israel are rescued. All those who've run off in fear get to come back in victory. Do you see who that's a picture of? It's a picture of David, but it's also a picture of Jesus. Do you see how these guys, fairly random, like regular, normal, average Joe kind of people, follow their leader, and because of God's strength and because of his example, because of his rescue of them, they get to stand up and rescue others. They get to be a part of what he's doing to make the world a better place. Do you see what they're doing? That They're cutting down weeds. Those people who've come into the garden to bring injustice, to bring pain and sadness and darkness and evil. They're gardeners, little gardeners like David was, cutting down weeds and making it a more beautiful garden so people can live in joy and peace and confidence. Do you see that it's God who does that? It's God who gives him power and strength. You can read on and see, but let me give you one little story of somebody like that. This is the story of a man called Quang. He was, um, well, is a Vietnamese uh, man who, back in the 1970s, um, started doing work, came to faith, and started doing work among students in Vietnam. Let me read you some of his story. It was in the 1970s, during the Vietnam War, that he planted the student movement. And in 1975, eventually, after the war had brought tens of thousands of deaths, the Americans withdrew. And at the last moment, Quang was offered the chance to leave the country with some American troops. He refused, preferring to stay to be a testimony to Christ in the situation. A few months later, he wrote a letter in which he said these words, I decided to stay, and I do not encourage any of the Christian students to leave the country. Their faith needs to be proved under trial, and God will not let them down if they truly believe in him. I doubt the kind of faith that is easygoing. 
Here they will be a witness to those who need Christ the most. My ministry will be restricted, but they will have more opportunity to witness and to uphold one another. If all desert Vietnam, who's going to be here to witness to the other side? And he finished the letter with these words. This is probably my last communication with you. Pray for me and the students and the church in Vietnam for wisdom to face the coming fiery trial. Our Lord has risen. We are going to suffer, to die, and to be raised up with him in glory. Please extend our warm greetings to all IFE's member movements. Thank you. Then he wrote that letter. Do you know what age he was? He was 26. After he wrote that, he went to plant churches, um, kind of behind enemy lines, and the church grew to be several hundred within a few years. Because of his growing influence, he was put in prison. And on one occasion, his interrogators challenged him. They said, do you not understand what we could do to you? And this is what he said in response. Do you not understand what God can do to you? You may be able to harm my body, but ultimately one day, you will all have to stand before the judgment seat of Jesus. Soon after this interrogation, they released him from prison and threw him out of the country. Today, he's still serving in the Vietnamese church, but outside with those who've, who've left. Kwong was a man a bit like Eliezer, wasn't he? And Eliezer was a man a bit like David, and David was a man like Jesus. You see, it's not just for all these legends and heroes of the past to be like the king, but it's for people like you and me. Or maybe you think, well, we're not in a war zone, you know, behind enemy lines, planting churches. I'm not a missionary like Jim Elliot, who could go and give his life, or Elizabeth Elliot, his, his wife, who, after he'd been killed, went back to exactly the same tribe. She went back, and they became Christians. You can read that story, or ask Chris Hess. He knows it pretty much back to front. People like us did that. But okay, those are missionaries. Those are going to be legends of the faith, faith. But me, what could I do? to follow Jesus. Well, let me tell you just really briefly about my friend Sam. Changed his name, might be a bit embarrassing. Sam is a man who's married to a lady called Debbie, and um, they're a really wonderful couple, but really just normal like me and you. He works in a school, works long hours. He has three kids. One of them is kind of happily married, has a a little child, but another daughter's really struggled with her own mental health. The other boy had kind of chronic shyness, and he's growing well, but they've had a real struggle to raise their children through their teenage years. I know, I imagine many of you know what that's like. He's a a leader in church. He helps and serves, but is often really busy and can't make it to everything. But he's keeping going. He's often tired, had to give up summer work at camps and various things because he just didn't have enough time to spend with his family and to spend with church. He's somebody run off his feet, but he's keeping going. I think he's getting close to pushing 50. And he's kept on going through uh, through the whole of his life. I think that guy, my friend Sam, and his wife Debbie are heroes of the faith. People who just keep plodding along and keep on going, persevering, walking with Jesus. I think those people are heroes in our generation. You don't, I think, have to go to the Amazon. You don't have to go and plant churches behind enemy lines. You don't have to take up a sword and and kill thousands of enemies. You just need to keep on plodding, keep on walking, keep on fighting sin day by day. Keep on looking to Jesus. Don't just strip off your own thorns. It's not what I mean by fighting sin. I mean looking to Jesus, bringing those things to him and say, Lord, would you turn these thorns into flowers? I want to be somebody who serves you and bears fruit. I want to be somebody who walks in the light, who's in your own hands. You can be a hero of the faith. So let me ask you just two questions to finish. One, are you fighting? Are you in the fight? 
I mean in the fight behind this king. Not just are you struggling along, trying to be a better person, trying to do a bit of religion. Anybody can do that in their own strength. No, are you somebody who, who's fighting after this king, who's serving Jesus, who in his power is looking at him and walking after him, in imitating him day by day? Are you in the fight with Jesus? Number two, if it's a yes to that, well, think about this. What's your ambition for him? If you're in one of those stages of life, like my friend Sam, then just stick at it. That should be your ambition. Keep on going. Persevere. Make it to the end to see Jesus look at you and say, well done, faithful and good servant. Just persevere. But maybe you feel you've got a bit more energy, you've got a bit more fire, and you want to do a bit more. Well, good. Have a holy ambition. Pray. Ask God to stir up something in the Scriptures, to stir up one of his commands, something that he loves, something really good, something, a cause that is close to his heart. Ask him to give you a holy ambition and go and serve, go and fight, go and give your life like he has given his life for you. We hope that you found today's message useful and challenging. And we want to take a moment to offer you some next steps that you can take right now. Why not get in touch with us via email at contact at amfordchurch.com if you have any follow-up questions or things that you'd like to discuss. If you want to know more about what's going on at Amford Church, make sure to like us on Facebook. And lastly, check out our YouTube channel for video teaching in addition to our sermon podcasts. Thanks for listening.